one patient uh, was actually um, a young uh, woman who was given a diagnosis of uh, gluten sensitivity. And um, she, so she started avoiding all gluten, uh, only buying things that are gluten-free on the package. And she thought she was doing well for a while. And then things kind of snowballed out of control where she started having constipation that's severe that she would only move her bowels once a week. She had lots of pain, lots of bleeding with it. Um, lots of her, her cramping and abdominal pain gotten a lot worse. Um, she started having lots of nausea every day, uh, especially after food. And um, first time I met her, I just told her, I'm not sure what's going on. I want you to bring the foods with you, take pictures of the labels, bring a food diary with you of the foods you ate in the last two weeks, and we'll start from there. Um, I reviewed all her past lab work. She didn't have celiac disease. Um, it's possible that she had gluten sensitivity because that's what she reported. And gluten sensitivity is not uncommon, but it's not celiac disease because you can still eat things that contain gluten, but uh, maybe the amounts uh, may make a difference. And certainly you, ha you don't have to be as vigilant as somebody who has celiac disease in terms of what kind of things you're eating. And uh, two weeks later, she came back uh, with. Um, a very detailed food diary. She brought pictures of the labels of the food she eats. And I realized that she doesn't eat anything that doesn't come in a box because she's so terrified of being exposed to gluten. She was eating gluten-free cookies, gluten-free cakes. She was eating gluten-free prepared meals in a package. And she was eating zero vegetables, zero, any kind of fresh food, food at all. And I kind of pointed out to her and she said, well, how am I supposed to know what has gluten and what doesn't, you know? And that's, that's a very common complaint, actually. Even for patients with celiac disease, it's a very real fear that they have of food. You know, you know, many patients actually develop food avoidance disorders, all sorts of eating disorders as a result of somebody telling them that they have a sensitivity to a certain food. Many times these patients end up going to allergists and naturopaths who do all sorts of fancy testing and... <laughs> diagnose them with all sorts of um, food allergies and uh, patients end up with a very restrictive diet. So with this lady, um, I once again went on Amazon with her. I asked her, do you have an Amazon account? She said, yes. So we sat together. We found a book, um, a low FODMAPS diet book, a cookbook um, that cost nine bucks, which was <laughs> almost cheaper than the amount of money she actually spent on food a day for all the gluten-free packaged foods that she was buying, which was, you know, very expensive. And um, she started, you know, learning how to cook from scratch. Uh, and she started eating fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, she was still gluten-free because she had a real fear of gluten. And eventually we started working together. And after a few sessions, she actually tried some wheat. And uh, she did have some little bit of bloating with it. so but it wasn't as bad as it was in the past, mostly because we kind of worked on resolving her constipation, resolving some of her other eating habits. She was also eating late at night because she was snacking throughout the day. She was you know, lo loading up on food right before bed, which gave her reflux. Not surprising, so we changed some of that. And uh, we basically changed her relationship with food completely. And uh, that really, I think, helped her a lot. She started having a bowel movement every day. Her bloating went away, her pain went away, 
And um, about two or three years later now, she started eating gluten in limited form, but she is still eating it, you know? And uh, it was a complete turnaround in, in terms of what kind of thing she was eating to what kind of thing she's eating now. You know, and it's possible that someone listening might say, well, you know, how big a deal is this? The, you know, someone changed their diet a bit, but having seen patients and seen how preoccupied and upset they are. I mean, this sounds like a big deal to me. Oh yeah, absolutely. She was, uh, she lost her, all her friends because she would never go out to eat with them. She had a completely different interaction. Just her life was completely locked down because of this issue she had. She wasn't going out. She wasn't interacting with anybody outside her apartment, you know, and that's, that's, a, that impacts everything in your life. You know, she can't go out with her coworkers to have a bite to eat because she was terrified of food. It's a real fear. Now that she's able to eat things outside um, the home, she'll be able to actually enjoy a meal somewhere else. Um, I don't think her fear of food is completely gone, but I could almost guarantee that, you know, she's able to like, even pick up an apple and eat an apple, which is she wasn't able to do before. She was afraid. Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. My guest today is Dr. Dimitri Kedrin. He is a gastroenterologist who practices in New Hampshire. He's also the creator and host of a podcast called GI Pearls, where he reviews current scientific literature in gastroenterology. Dr. Dimitri Kedrin, welcome to Medical Murmurs. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start by asking about your early life. So uh, I'm an immigrant. I came over from former Soviet Union when I was 15 years old, and my parents brought me over to New York City. And uh, I didn't speak any English, and I Three years later, I was in college at NYU, and uh, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I, I think I always wanted to be a vet. I kind of grew up in a household full of pets. At, at some point, I had so many animals that I basically two hours a day, I needed to take care of them. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, at some point, I decided to go into medicine. I'm not sure what it was. I think it was the science pursuit of it, because I eventually ended up uh, in a MD-PhD joint program, which lasts eight years, which is a little longer than most people spend in med school. But I think it was very helpful to, and I think it really helped me become what I am today in terms of what kind of medicine I practice and what kind of things I do, even though eventually I kind of deviated away from doing basic science for many different reasons, you know? Yeah, um, I spent a lot of years doing basic research, you know, basic basic science, killing a lot of mice in the process. Yeah. Um, publishing papers and uh, eventually somehow ended up in uh, gastroenterology. I think <clears throat> the most important experience I had in med school was because I spent so much time there during the research years, I wanted to do some clinical work, you know, at least to have some clinical exposure. And one of my friends recommended that I spent some overnights in the emergency uh, department. And uh, at, at my medical school, Arbonne College of Medicine, which is affiliated with Jacoby 
medical center, which is in the Bronx. And you see all sorts of things in the emergency department in the Bronx. And there is this ED doc, his name is Tony Corsiari, who kind of, you know, teaches med students and uh, residents, and he's amazing. So every few weeks, Thursday nights, I'll be in the emergency department uh, seeing pretty much everything. And that was a really good way for me to be exposed to all sorts of medical specialties. For some reason, ED wasn't for me, but uh, gastroenterology attracted me for a variety of reasons, mostly because I like to do procedures. But also in my basic science career, I did a lot of microscopy. And uh, you do have to deal with lenses to a limited degree, but still a lot of cameras involved in gastroenterology. So I thought it was a perfect combination of things for me because uh, I actually th I was thinking of applying in surgery as well, but for some reason I didn't. I stuck with gastroenterology and I have no regrets. <laughs> well, tell me more about, you know, in some more detail about how you chose your specialty. Well, um, my basic science research ha had to do with cancer. Uh, I did a lot of modeling of breast cancer metastasis. And a friend of mine actually, uh, one of the postdocs in the lab who eventually became a professor over in uh, the Netherlands, started doing a little bit of work on the gut. And uh, I kind of envisioned myself kind of pursuing those lines of research myself. And um, I started doing a few rotations in gastroenterology. And um, just the technical aspect of it, just doing the procedures themselves and, uh, you know, becoming better and better, uh, doing those kind of attracted me because, you know, some things in medicine could be daunting, but this to me somehow wasn't doing procedures all day uh, and removing polyps. There's some, you know, some finesse, some, uh, some uh, you know, the, the better you are doing something and it's very rewarding to just find a polyp and remove it, find a cancer and remove it. And uh, somehow that, that was very appealing to me. Um, I also liked nutrition. And uh, I think we all know that uh, nutrition training in uh, United States medical schools is somewhat subpar. And uh, I think gastroenterology has a big impact on nutrition as a profession and what, we, what kind of advice we give to patients. Lots of conditions that we treat you know, are impacted on by what patients eat. And that also attracted me as well. You you referenced nutrition training in 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 medical schools, and honestly, you, my specialty is emergency medicine. It's not something I think a lot about the nutrition training I received back in medical school, which I did in Australia, by the way. So, uh, oh, cool. um, but uh, um, maybe you could talk about that. I mean, what? Why do you feel that it's deficient? Well, obesity epidemic is something that's on the top of everybody's mind, and uh, I think every month there's a new paper coming out telling you not to eat this not to eat that you know and every decade there's a fad diet you know we went from eating fats to not eating fats now we're eating fats again now it's the carbs that are you know the culprit of making us obese and at the end of the day i don't think anybody knows what the heck's going on but we know it's our habits that are making us obese and uh habits are the hardest thing to change and uh, in terms of what we taught in medical school, we taught the basics, the basic science of it. But even that, you know, is kind of derived from very kind of a not very scientific way of thinking, mostly, you know, very large population based studies. And uh, the advice 
that we often give to patients ends up being wrong. So I spend uh, most of the day doing endoscopies and the rest of the afternoon I spend writing notes, uh, communicating with primary care doctors and writing uh, letters to patients. And then during clinic day, um, it's just a typical clinic day where I see patients anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes a visit addressing anything from inflammatory bowel disease, liver disease. And uh, my primary interest actually is in irritable bowel syndrome, which is uh, most GI docs don't like to see those patients, even though it's majority of our patients, uh, because they tend to be very complex. Uh, but in terms of their complaints, there's a lot of um, very kind of um, non-specific complaints about, and it could be anything from a headache to jitteriness to, you know, obviously abdominal pain, diarrhea, and bloating, a lot of bloating. You know, I, I think that it's not just restricted to gastroenterology doctors who can find uh, irritable bowel uh, to be clinically at some times challenging. Oh, um, absolutely, yeah. There is, a, you may uh, tell me I'm wrong here, but last time, I looked as an emergency doctor, there was no uh, test that would t tell you up or down, yes or no, this person has irritable bowel. It's a collection of symptoms. Um, and um, uh, there's certainly no magic single you know, cure or process right, to make the patient better. Am I accurate there? Absolutely, yeah. But for some reason, I find those patients to be most interesting because you really have to delve into exactly what they're feeling, how often they're feeling it what brings it on, what doesn't bring it on. It requires a very detailed conversation with the patient. It's not cl as clear cut as, you know, you have a polyp, you remove the polyp. Or you have a pain because you have gallstones and one of them happened to get out into the duct and block the duct. You know, you find the problem, you fix it. Here it's more, you have to really, really pay attention to details to try to figure out what the diagnosis is. There is some very simple joy for most people in medicine in finding something that, there's a definitive test which proves that your strongest clinical suspicion was right, and there's a clear way to treat it. Oh, uh, absolutely. Everyone right. is susceptible to the uh, the pleasure of that kind of simple fix. Yeah, I think that's that's why we have so many different tests available for all sorts of things. And uh, not only is there, you know, very I like I derive the pleasure from not only not having that test because you know, it'd be easy if you had one, but also explaining to the patient that I can't just find a test and prove to them that this is what it is. Because, you know, oftentimes patients come in, even for reflux, you know, they come in for an upper endoscopy and I tell them the test is normal. Some people, some patients would get very angry <laughs> because I did not find what's wrong with them. And it requires a very, you know, very uh, kind of a careful wording, try to explain to them that's a good news that we didn't find anything wrong, so to speak, but, you know, and you have to give them a good explanation why they have symptoms and how to fix it. Well, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm a generalist, but um, last time I looked at things, uh, you don't do a colonoscopy on everyone that has irritable bowel, right? You would do it on some people. Is that Absolutely, correct? Yeah. yeah. And so when I have patients that have irritable bowel, often I'm not the one who is primarily, you know, I, I'm not seeing them for that problem. Um, I may see them for a flare-up of symptoms um, that brings them to the ER. But for people for whom their irritable bowel symptoms intrude on their life a lot, they're thinking all the time about when their last bowel movement was and 
Was it diarrhea or was it constipation? Did they have the urge to consti- to, to, to defecate and then they, they couldn't do it? Are they bloating? Do they feel uh, or hear uh, sounds from, from, from their abdomen? Um, all this stuff. And it, it, it just takes a, a larger piece of their mental real estate than it does for most people who don't think a whole lot about their bowel movements and their abdomen. And then if they get a colonoscopy and you say, you know, great news, it's normal, I can understand the frustration there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Especially if they know that maybe we didn't need to do a colonoscopy, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves is when uh, patients are referred directly for a colonoscopy and the referrals just says IBS, you know, I didn't see any documentation of somebody actually discussing the symptoms with the patient or, you know, a little bit of bloating is not a reason to do a colonoscopy, you know. Could you maybe tell me about someone, uh, a patient who, uh, came to you um, and perhaps someone that you got to really spend some time, not just do a colonoscopy, but you got to see them and extensively discuss the symptoms and someone for whom it was having a big impact on their life. Oh, yeah. Um, Speaking of uh, things that, uh, you know, related to diet, I think uh, one of the biggest impacts you can have on a person's uh, lives in terms of dietary changes is people with liver disease, especially uh, with chronic liver disease like cirrhosis, where one of the biggest killers of people with cirrhosis is actually frailty, you know, which is heavily linked to what you eat and how much we exercise. Uh, I saw um, a few months ago a 70-year-old guy who uh, was a heavy drinker, developed cirrhosis with all the complications with esophageal varices, ascites. Let's explain that for the listeners. Oh, sure. So um, there are a lot of different impacts on the body of alcohol abuse, of chronic alcohol abuse. And so one of them you mentioned is cirrhosis. Um, Please, uh, if you could, just uh, go into that a little bit. Yeah, so chronic uh, use of alcohol leads leads to basically injury of the liver uh, cells, which leads to fibrosis, basically scarring of the liver, and eventually becomes irreversible to a point where majority of the liver is actually being replaced with scar tissue, um, which is, you know, we call cirrhosis. Um, which interferes with many functions of the body because liver is involved in many different processes, including protein synthesis, even effects on uh, how many platelets you have in the blood, which leads to all sorts of other complications. And there's not almost no organ system that's not involved when your liver is injured, including, you know, the ability of liver to process, so to speak, toxins leads to your thinking not being cleared. You kind of walk in a fog. Uh, because your liver is scarred, your blood flow is interrupted, and blood tries to find other ways to get back to the heart if you can't go through the liver. So your uh, blood veins around the esophagus become very uh, dilated, and it can bleed. And these are esophageal varices, which is one of the most common reasons people die with cirrhosis is one of those veins, the varices start bleeding. And, and just to you know, to expand on that for for listeners who aren't in medicine, um, this is like having very big varicose veins um, or uh, or hemorrhoids almost, but uh, in 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 your your esophagus, um, and they're fragile. And also, people with cirrhosis, their blood doesn't clot as well for multiple reasons. They don't have the right proteins to help them clot. They don't have enough platelets to help them clot. Um, and so, one of these things can just get scratched. Uh, and then start bleeding, and it will not stop. 
And uh, this is one of the most challenging cases in gastroenterology when you have an esophageal bleed where you have to go in emergently in a patient who is often critically ill, often in the intensive care unit with low blood count, low blood pressure, and you have to go in into a very um, sort of contaminated field where you have to find the source of bleeding in a, in a giant pool of blood. And it's very, you know, technically challenging to fix it. And I'm going to let you get back to your story in a moment, but I do want to explain also that you mentioned ascites, and ascites is when you get a collection of fluid that just builds up and builds up inside the abdomen. And the abdomen can get really quite distended. It can, you know, get big and round. And at the same time, a lot of these patients also, they have muscle wasting. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, what you see is someone with a big round abdomen, but very sort of shrunken, wasted limbs. Right. Um, and they're often yellow because of the, they, as, as you said, they're not clearing toxins. Right. Absolutely. And so I'll let you get back to your story. I'll let you tell, you, tell us about this patient. Yeah. And the, one of the other challenges with uh, patients who consume a lot of alcohol is that while consuming the alcohol, they actually are not eating things that are nutritious because, you know, they're busy drinking alcohol. And um, um, so this 70-year-old gentleman who came in to see me, he was still actively drinking. And I had some reservations about his ability to stop drinking. He certainly promised to cut down, and the conversation kind of steered over to what kind of things he's eating. And, you know, he had, a, you know, somewhat of a typical American diet, uh, lots of processed foods, you know, cereal in the morning. So, and then I noticed that he does not really have much protein in his diet. And the, the general advice is to help these patients by asking them to actually take a nutritional supplement like an Ensure or Boost or kind of Carnation Instant Breakfast, you know, a high-protein rich drink to kind of help them in addition to what they're eating. And his answer was basically, I'm sorry, I can't do that, doc. I can't afford it. And, you know, that's another challenge in medicine we, we have with patients not only not able to do what we ask them, but also not being able to afford them. But going back into his history, um, I had a lot of questions about where he lives, you know, what kind of environment he lives in. And one of the things that I remembered was that he's raising chickens. And, uh, I asked him, what, what, what do you do with the eggs? And he says, oh, I just give them to my neighbors. And I said, well, we're going to stop that. <laughs> and you're going to eat all those eggs. You're going to eat three eggs a day at least, with basically an egg with every meal. And it was just basically a very simple solution to you know, increasing protein in this gentleman's diet while he's doing all the other things he's supposed to to kind of prevent him from his liver disease actually killing him, you know, reducing alcohol. And, uh, you know, coming to see me once in a while just to make sure everything else is okay. But, uh, yeah, this was kind of a situation where diet, I think, will not only help him, you know, live a longer life, but also, you know, we didn't have to spend much resources trying to get this man on a better diet. And we just used something that he already has, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of patients I see in clinic, actually speaking of other patients, uh, obesity and uh, fatty liver disease and, you know, a lot of uh, basically complaints uh, with, uh, of patients with IBS tend to get better if you are on a better diet. You know, one of the treatments we have for irritable bowel syndrome is this diet called the low FODMAPS diet, uh, which is actually developed in Australia. But it's uh, the idea there is that... Uh, the certain carbohydrates in our foods make you bloated. So if you reduce the foods with those specific carbohydrates, your bloating and perhaps your abdominal cramping and 
pain will get better. And I think in terms of diets helping with irritable bowel syndrome, we have the best evidence for this type of diet, which is a low FODMAP diet. And uh, oftentimes when you see a primary care doctor or gastroenterologist or, or any physician as a patient, they often tell you, oh, just change your diet, start exercising, good luck. What I typically tend to do is actually sit down with a patient and uh, we pull up Google, we pull up Amazon or their local library and say, okay, so let's pick a cookbook. I know you're cooking a little bit. Let's improve your cooking. And uh, I basically ask them to purchase a cookbook and as a way of changing the way they eat because it's easy to tell patients, oh, don't eat these, don't eat that, don't eat, that, don't, don't eat this. But you got to tell them what to eat, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, even I see patients from other doctors and they often come in and they're on a very restricted diet because they tell me, oh, my doctor told me not to eat this, not to eat that. And I wasn't sure what to eat. <laughs> and um, yeah, so dietary advice uh, really goes a long way in, in terms of changing the trajectory of patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So let me go back to the case of the, that gentleman with a history of alcohol abuse, um, active alcohol abuse. Um, why was he sent to you? And what tests did you end up doing on him? So actually the reason he was sent to me is because his platelets were low. And there was a suspicion for cirrhosis based on his um, just recorded drink, uh, alcohol uh, history of uh, drinking heavily for over 30 years. Um, the test that I got was just a liver ultrasound just to prove to everybody that he has cirrhosis. Because he was 70 years old, uh, it's, it's very rare for uh, patients in the United States to get liver transplant beyond the age of 65 just because we have such a scarcity of livers to be transplanted. Um, it does happen, but because he was an active drinker, this is actually a very heavy area of investigation where the person who just stopped drinking today can get a liver transplant. He was actually not sick enough to get it right now. He would eventually get sick enough to get it, but we don't know how long it would take. It all depends on what he does. Um, there are certain criteria that are required to be met for you to qualify for a liver transplant. And he was just, you know, just on the side where he didn't need it at that time. And what was his insight and thoughts on his alcohol consumption? Well, he was actually, you know, he had a very good insight into understanding that his alcohol use really was causing a lot of his issues. Um, but he was a retired guy and this was, pretty much his hobby and uh he was very open and upfront about it saying that he's not going to quit completely and but he was happy to cut down you know yeah which is not always the case there's a lot of um denial um when it comes to alcohol for you know understandable reasons and uh but for for this gentleman specifically he was he he, he had complete understanding of what alcohol is doing to him so i was wondering if now we could talk about um, some cases that have really stuck with you. One of the most interesting cases I had recently was um, a lady in her late 90s who uh, had a CAT scan um, for one reason or another, and there was a suspicion for a mass in her right colon. Uh, she never had a colonoscopy before, and uh, I, I'm, she wasn't sure if she wanted one herself. 
And it's understandable because colonoscopies in uh, patients in their 90s could be challenging and much riskier than in patients who are younger. So she came to my office and um, she kind of was hesitant to even come to the office because she wasn't sure what she wanted to do. So she kind of came in with a lot of reservations. I was like, hmm, you know what? I don't know if I want to do a procedure. Um, uh, you know, if something is going to get me, something will get me. It, maybe it's that mask that will get me, but, you know, maybe I should just take my chances, you know. Um, so she had a lot of um, uh, stories for me about her life, and we kind of got to talking about her history, about things that are important for her. And she, despite being in her late 90s, lived independently, still drove a car, which is a little scary, but she did. Uh, she shopped for herself and uh, she was a very independent woman. And she said that the most important thing to her was her independence. Um, and uh, we had a discussion about what possible things are, you know, living in her colon at the moment based on the CAT scan. Um, I was fairly certain that it was some sort of a mass, maybe a big polyp or a big tumor. It didn't look like it had metastasized to any other part of her body. And I kind of told her, you know, if independence is important to you, um, you may lose that independence if you have invasive cancer. And it will certainly kill you. It will certainly shorten your life. And I understand that you're in the 90s, but you're fairly healthy. I think we should give it a shot. We keep hearing about polyps. So for the non-doctors, I asked Dr. Kedrin to explain what they are. So polyp is a, is a little growth, sort of like a mole on the skin, but on the skin of the colon. That's how I typically describe it. And it's, uh, you know, they have different shapes. Some polyps are completely flat and it's basically abnormal growth where the tissue, the lining of the colon decides to grow out of proportion to the, uh, in terms of the rate of, and the kind of cells it generates different from the rest of the lining of the colon. And eventually it leads to what's known as dysplasia, which is basically an abnormal growth, which can, it's one of the steps on becoming cancer. And um, finding those sometimes is challenging if they're flat, if it's a, if it's a raised kind of a little bump, uh, it's easy to find, but it's a, if it's a flat polyp, they're, they're harder to find. You know, I convinced her to have a colonoscopy. You know, and I told her that, you know, if they go and get stuff, we'll just stop. You know, if there's, if her colon is very twisted, if the procedure itself is very challenging, we'll just stop and not go any further. And um, a few days later, she had a colonoscopy and um, we found a very, very large tumor, which had cancer in it. And overall, this was just very, the colonoscopy itself wasn't challenging at all. You know, getting the polyp removed was very routine, you know. And um, I think we lifted a lot of weight off her shoulders because she was really worried about this thing. And um, worried enough that even though she was very hesitant about getting procedures, she did come into the office to talk about it. She could have you know, completely dismissed it and uh, moved on with her life. Um, but you know, whatever will uh, happen to her, colon cancer will not be <laughs> her undoing. So it was a it was a polyp. It was a very large polyp, yeah, with cancer inside the polyp. And so you were 
convinced at the end that having taken out the polyp, you had completely removed the cancerous material. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, the polyp was on a large, large stalk, which was separate from the rest of her colon. So it was very easy to just cut the stalk off and all the cancer, all the polyp was gone and she didn't have to worry about it again. Well, that's a great fix. Yeah. Tell me a bit about when she, did you talk with her as she was waking up from the sedation or did you uh, have the, the real discussion with her when she came back to your office? Well, no, no, no. So uh, we used propofol, which, uh, you know, wears out pretty quickly and uh, waited for her daughter to get there as well. And then uh, in the uh, recovery room, uh, we got the talking. She was, she was, she was very pleased <laughs> as was I <laughs> that uh, this was a, you know, I was hesitant to do colonoscopy as well myself because, you know, she was super nice lady. She was fairly active. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned, she was driving and cooking for herself. I did not want my colonoscopy killing her. So uh, many times it's, it's a fine balance of who do you agree to do procedures on when the procedure itself is high risk, you know, and compared to doing colonoscopy in a healthy 50 year old doing colonoscopy in a healthy 90 year old is not the same. I mean, the, the, the risk of death, even in a 90-year-old, is still quite low compared to other procedures, isn't Absolutely, it? yeah. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, if you make it into your 90s, it's rare for patients not to have many other diseases, you know, going on at the same time. Heart disease, um, you know, liver disease, all sorts of things going on when you get into your 90s. Thankfully, she was very healthy, and that helps with the decision-making process, for sure. During some other parts of our discussion, Dr. Kedron mentioned some hair-raising cases, so I asked him to tell me about one. Oof, yeah. So um, one of the most challenging things uh, in gastroenterology, I think I mentioned to you, is dealing with uh, esophageal varices, uh, which tend to bleed, and uh, many times patients don't do well. Um, I don't really have a specific example, but many times... It's usually, we're called in the middle of the night, there's a patient in the emergency department vomiting large amounts of blood and becoming unstable, which is a, a good indication that I need to come in and actually fix things. Um, so you get up and you um, show up to the hospital and um, you get the patient admitted to the ICU, intensive care unit, um, and um, get them set up for endoscopy, making sure that their vitals are okay, that the blood counts are okay. Um, most of the time, we don't really give any platelets or anything like that, uh, but many times the patients get intubated for the procedure because just of the amount of vomiting that they're getting of blood because we want to protect their airway. Um, and the procedure itself, as I mentioned to you, usually you have to make sure that if a patient has esophageal varices, that does not, that not, that not necessarily mean that they're bleeding from there. You have to make sure that they're not bleeding somewhere else. And that's challenging because if you go into the stomach of somebody in somebody who has a bleed, the stomach is full of blood. It's just a sea of blood. And you have to carefully try to inspect the whole stomach to make sure you're not missing anything. Something else that's bleeding, it could be a duodenal ulcer, it could be a stomach ulcer, it could be a tear at the junction of the esophagus in the stomach called Mallory-Weiss tear. It could be just a bleeding vessel somewhere hiding in the pool of blood. And um, what makes these cases challenging is the fact that patients is at risk of becoming unstable at any moment. Um, there is a risk of you finding a source of bleeding and not being able to fix it. 
And that's always frustrating, you know, because you really want to help. And sometimes you just can't help because, you know, sometimes the varices themselves, uh, despite your banding, they continue to bleed. Thankfully, we have, we have some backup these days uh, in, uh, in, uh, in interventional radiology, which are sometimes can help us fix those bleeds from the vessel side of things rather than the esophagus side of things. And um, you really have to decide on the spot whether a patient is a candidate for that type of procedure and you have to act quickly because many patients don't survive this type of um, attack of bleeding. Are you able to think of, of one example of someone that had a pretty severe bleed and just sort of walk me through when you were called in and, and what you did and what you saw? Well, one of the most interesting thing I had uh, maybe about a year ago, I had a patient come in. He actually had metastatic colon cancer leading to actually, and he actually had cirrhosis of the liver as well, had esophageal varices, had uh, multiple metastases throughout his body, including his lungs, in his peritoneum, in his liver, um, and several actually um, in his small bowel as well. So he came in with melana, which is black stools, and vomiting blood at the same time. So it was very challenging to find out where he's bleeding exactly and how much of this we can fix because he was fairly sick to begin with. Bleeding at both ends. Oh, yeah. It was, well, yeah, potentially bleeding at both ends, but also he had a very distended abdomen. And his family kept insisting that his abdomen was not the size before. So it was, you know, most important to find out why his abdomen is getting bigger and bigger and to perform endoscopy to figure out where he's bleeding and how to stop it. Um, talking to the family, it sounds like he was not doing well in the last couple of weeks. He was getting more lethargic getting sleepy and really not you know, losing interest in a lot of things. And um, at some point, uh, we got a CAT scan. We saw that he has lots of fluid in his belly. Uh, we saw that he has big esophageal varices. His stomach was full of fluid, which was likely blood. Um, so before performing an endoscopy, actually, I just went up with a bedside ultrasound and literally stuck a needle, a 20cc uh, 20, uh, 20 uh, needle into his belly and drew back just to see what fluid he has in his belly. And it was just pure blood. You know, he was bleeding not only in his esophagus, likely his stomach, and he was also bleeding into his peritoneal cavity. You know, and uh, then we had to decide what to do next, whether we to actually attempt to fix these things because by that point he was already intubated uh his blood pressure was getting lower and lower he was started on uh, blood pressure support with pressors you know he had fluids going in uh, all the intensive care um team was kind of you know not very optimistic and at that point you know this is this is a good time to have a conversation with the family about exactly what we want to do in terms of goals of care for this patient because bleeds in the abdomen are very hard to fix and a patient who has so many things going on, liver disease, metastatic cancer, sometimes the best thing is to not attempt to fix things, you know, and that ultimately that's what we decided. Yeah, but uh, I think sticking a needle into the abdomen just to kind of prove to everybody that he's bleeding in more than one source was critical here because, you know, I can envision us doing an endoscopy, maybe finding a bleeding vessel, maybe, maybe putting some bands into bleeding varices, but ultimately that would do nothing to help them. Can you think of a case where you were called in for someone with bleeding varices 
and uh, it was just a, a really bad bleed and you weren't able to get control. This was a, actually a very young guy, 34-year-old guy, um, who had uh, multiple episodes of bleeding in the past. And um, he came in again with vomiting blood. He had multiple endoscopies in the past with banding of the varices where we put a little rubber band around the big vein in the esophagus to kind of try to block the bleed. Oftentimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and this time I, I went in and um, this this gentleman has been um, kind of going around and he's been to several other hospitals. Uh, we, we, because he was unresponsive when we found him, he, we didn't really know what the most recent history was, but when I went in to do the upper endoscopy, it was obvious to me that he actually just had an endoscopy probably three or four days ago um, because there were several bands still present in his esophagus and, uh, and there was just several ulcers from previous banding that were actively bleeding and uh, I could not fix it. I tried all sorts of things. What did you try? I tried putting clips on them. I tried uh, using more bands and it just made things worse. And um, despite trying, and then the other thing is he actually had lots of blood in his stomach. So I wouldn't be surprised if he had other varices that were bleeding somewhere else, because not only can you get varices in your stomach, sorry, in your esophagus, you can get them in your stomach and actually in your small bowel as well. And those can bleed as well. And those actually are even more dangerous because they're harder to fix. And they're harder to find when you're actively bleeding. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was bleeding somewhere else. So despite us trying for several hours to control the bleed, um, IR was called and they, they said they, there's not much they can do because he actually, while we were getting uh, all sorts of x-rays, he had multiple coils already placed by IR elsewhere. So this was um, kind of um, our last, you know, Bitch effort to try to save this man and nothing would work. So he died. He did die, yeah. So because we've talked a lot about diet, and it sounds like you pay a lot of attention uh, to it with your patients, um, I do want to see if you can wade into the current um, you know, swing towards uh, fat and protein and away from carbs and also the intermittent fasting, uh, which has become an absolute, I mean, that has taken off. Yes. Um, I, you know, I got to admit that I actually got into a little bit of a Twitter fight war with somebody who was a big proponent of uh, intermittent fasting. I've read the studies. I, you know, I did actually some research in obesity and cancer in the past, so I'm not a stranger to um, metabolism. But uh, a lot of studies in intermittent fasting leave one thing out, is that while you're skipping meals, you are consuming less calories. So the calorie hypothesis is not completely rejected you know does it help you feel uh that you're able to eat less maybe and there is evidence for that but you're still consuming less calories in the end ultimately it doesn't matter if you're eating less calories you will lose weight and if intermittent fasting is the way to do it that's fine um but i don't want anybody to get an impression that there's something magical about intermittent fasting compared to other diets and the other kind of a big problem with a diet like intermittent fasting or any other diet these days uh, you know most patients and most people actually don't diet for the rest of their lives so if you're going to change your the way you eat it should be gentle it should be gradual and it should be for the rest of your life so if if skipping breakfast skipping lunch 
and only eating once a day or whatever the uh, latest intermittent fasting uh, gurus tell you what to do. If you got to have to do this for the rest of your life. And if you're okay with that, that's great. So tell me about uh, your position on the, you know, the higher fat, higher protein and, and lower carb trend. I kind of uh, fall into the Michael Pollan group of uh, uh, ideas where, you know, eat food, not too much and uh, eat a variety of things. I don't know if uh, restricting yourself to just a high carb, um, sorry, low carb uh, diet and high fat, high protein kind of uh, diet is sustainable long-term. It's possible that it could be. I know you see a lot of patients going on um, low carb diets and actually losing weight. Um, but the truth is most patients, if they stick to any diet, end up losing weight. So I'm not sure if it's anything uh, more specific or magical about a low fat or sorry low carb diets that compared to other diets you know low fat diets uh in the past people lost weight too they just didn't maintain it off so if uh low carb diets help you do that that's great do i think that this is the magic answer i don't i'm not sure i think at the end of the day once again <clears throat> it's something that you need to do long term and if that's the way you want to do it that's fine so I kind of gave you a non-answer answer. <laughs> no, I'll take it. I'll take it. Dr. Dimitri Kedrin, thank you so much for appearing on Medical Murmurs. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. This is Medical Murmurs. You've been listening to my interview with Dr. Dimitri Kedrin. He's a gastroenterologist who practices in New Hampshire. He's also the creator and host of a podcast called GI Pearls, where he reviews current scientific literature in gastroenterology. This is Medical Murmurs. If you're a medical student or just interested in medical careers, there is another episode with the same guest where we focus on career questions such as how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called Medical Murmurs Medical Student Edition. Check it out.